You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. In her award-winning book, Isabel Wilkerson follows the warmth of other sons. It is the story of the great migration of black families leaving the South, the Jim Crow South, where slavery was illegal, but sharecropping and the Jim Crow laws were still very much alive. And she looks at the four different families that leave the South trying to go and find work. They go to northern cities like Chicago and Detroit and, um, and uh, New York, and then some head west. Uh, some even go to Los Angeles. And she profiles these four different families as they try to leave their situation to go and find work and find hope in another place. And in reading that book and following those stories, it parallels much of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Many of those families, the, the scales of sharecropping were literally tipped against them. There were literally weights on the scales that would cut into their profits. So as soon as they could gather up enough money and enough uh, wherewithal and enough arrangements to buy a train ticket away from their situation, they would buy a train ticket for a couple stations up the line or a couple towns over. Often they would go under cover of darkness and they would go and hop on those trains Even holding a ticket, having purchased a ticket to be on that train, they would not eat or drink or use the restroom for hours and hours and hours at a time, essentially like stowaways in their own train. And they would arrive in these new cities only to find that Polish immigrants had this factory locked up and Irish immigrants had this factory locked up. And it was very, very hard, even there, because of prejudice, because of racism, to find work in these new cities But they would eventually find jobs and homes. They would move in and establish churches, live lives of faith, and build their families. And when they felt like it was safe and they had the means, they would go and travel back to the South. And when they would do that to go and visit relatives that they had left, sometimes decades before that they had not seen in years, only corresponded through letters, they would wear their best clothes. They would wear their nicest dresses, find the best car they could. They would buy gifts for their family because you don't want to go back to your hometown and not validate the choice that you had made. You want to show that the choice that we made was the right choice, that the choice that we made to leave, that we're validating that choice, that it all came to fruition. We made the right call and we left and now we're coming back. You want to come back as the conquering hero, even if life is still very, very hard where you live. And so we follow these families and in a very similar way, over the next three weeks, we're going to follow a family in the Old Testament. A family who's in the midst of an economic downturn, who's in the midst of a famine, and has to leave their homeland to go and find work and go and live in another place. And we'll watch as God's invisible hand walks with this family in their migration away from their hometown to go and to survive, and then as they come back to their hometown. We're going to watch God's invisible hand in the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. And even as we watch this invisible hand over the next three weeks, By the third week, you'll be able to see how God used their story to write the next chapters of the Bible. In fact, the chapters of the Bible that you're more familiar with were written exactly by the circumstances that we see in Ruth. So let me give you a little bit of background on where we are in the book of Ruth. The people have exited Egypt. God's people have exited Egypt. They've gone out in the book that we call the Exodus. They have left Egypt They have received the law from God through Moses on Mount Sinai. They've got a tabernacle, kind of this temporary tent that's the most concentrated experience you could have with God at that time. He doesn't live in the tent, but they travel with it and they worship him there. 
And finally, God has led them to the promised land, and Joshua leads them into the promised land. And they're there, but they have this kind of patchwork of counties, essentially. There are these patchworks of these different tribes with different judges. There isn't a temple yet. We haven't built a temple. We're still in this temporary tabernacle. The priests are kind of so-so. We don't have a king on the throne yet. We don't have like a, a unifying king that we can look to. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing in all these sort of tribal allotments, these counties as it were. And then you have a horrible economic downturn. Then you have a famine. And so Elimelech and Naomi decide we're going to move our family of four to Moab. We're going to move to Moab because we found that there is, we've heard that there is food there. At least there's enough work and food that we will survive to see another year. At least we'll survive to, to, to play another game, to see another year in our family. And so Naomi and Elimelech take their two boys, Malon and Kalion, and they head over to Moab. Now keep in mind, when you arrive in a new place, you don't own any land. You don't hold political office. You have very little money to speak for. But at least you have three men who can work. And at that time, that's a big, big deal, right? So we've got three able-bodied men that show up in Moab, and at least we've got these guys, and they can work, and we can literally scratch out a living from the land and somehow survive where maybe we can go back home one day. And so they begin this life, this new life in Moab, and wouldn't you know it, but Elimelech, the dad, he dies. Now we are down one man, right? We came here with three now we've only got two. So we've got the two sons, but Naomi's going to be okay. She's got two sons, but now those two sons are of marrying age, right? So they want to marry Moabite wives, right? Well, these are like the real housewives of Moab, right? They keep these guys busy. They've got to provide a lot for them. Like they're really, but you know, they always check in on mom. They always take care of mom. You know, they're always, a, and then Malon, the oldest son dies. Now we are down to one son. We're kind of on the backup son. You know, you always have that other son that's like the backup son. Like, this son's going to take care of me, but if anything happens to him, like, I'll have the backup son. At least he's, you know, around and working. And then Kilion dies. Now we have lost all three of our men. All three of our income earners, all three of our providers are gone. And now there's Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, in a land that is not Naomi's hometown, this is not her home country, and she's gone through three funerals. Now, back in that time, we think of it as, well, these women are strong, they're empowered, they can do it, they're tough, and they were tough. You will see in the next couple weeks, these women were extremely tough. God had enabled them to do amazing things. In fact, God would use them for extremely crazy circumstances that would lead us up to people that you know in your Bible much more familiar than Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. But at the same time, in the time and the context in which you lived, your family was everything. You see, your family was how you kept land in the family, how you kept the water rights in the family, how you protected the wells that provided for your livestock. If you owned a well, if you provided the well, that was a gold mine. That's how you ran your farm. You protected your land. It was really, really important. So a lot of times now we think that women can achieve a lot academically or professionally, and we really don't ask many questions about their private life or their families, though, though sometimes those are amazing. But at this time, your home life, your spouse, your men and your family were everything. And so while we think it's pretty devastating to lose three people in the span of 10 years, it's even more devastating at their time. 
And so they're in a really, really rough spot. They're in a really, really hard spot. Now in Moab, they've lost the three men in their family. But notice how Naomi talks about the experience of the last 10 years. Notice how she refers to the experience of the last 10 years in verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. You see, Ruth allowed the faithfulness and kindness of God to flow through the everyday life of her family, preparing her for the day when tragedy would strike. Did you realize that Ruth and Orpah, these Moabite wives, had a front row seat to the faithfulness of Ruth's family, to the faithfulness and kindness of God, to this Yahweh God, this living God that they worshiped and they served? That over the last 10 years, we've gone through two weddings and three funerals, and yet Naomi looks back on those 10 years and says, God has dealt with me kindly. You have dealt with me kindly. She's been allowed to see the faithfulness and kindness of God flow through the everyday life of her family. It's important for this reason. I think that when crisis happens, when the death happens, when the tragedy happens, you've either allowed the faithfulness and kindness of God to flow through your everyday life, or you haven't. And if you've allowed the faithfulness and kindness of God to flow through the everyday life of your family, through every breakfast and every lunch made, every prayer for every kid, every carpool line, every dinner that's made, every errand that's run, every time you go to the store, every time you get in a conflict with your spouse, every time the, the kid tries to buck your authority, every time it's clean up your room, if the faithfulness and kindness of God is flowing through your family, then when the day of crisis hits, when the day of tragedy hits, you'll be able to handle it. You'll be able to live through it. You'll be able to feel God's faithfulness and kindness to you in that moment. I get the privilege of serving, the honor of serving with families that are grieving, who have lost loved ones. And so I see that death is always sudden. It's always tragic. It always feels final. I don't care how long someone has been sick. I don't care how long we've known. It always feels final. It always feels like a big weight, like this bomb just got dropped in the middle of your family. It's always, always hard. And yet I've presided over two different kinds of funerals. For families that are falling apart of the seams, then those that have hope, because every day they felt the, the full faithfulness and the kindness of God in their family, so that when this day comes, as hard as it is, as tearful as it is, as difficult as it is, they have something to lean on. They have something that's been there every day until that day, that they can lean on, that they can have hope in. I've gone to many, many NRHBC funerals where there is tears, and there is sadness, but there is an underlying joy and just a confidence about people's life that is unreal. That if you were to come and attend, you would think, aren't these people sad? In most cases, we're just saying we're jealous because they beat us to heaven. We're jealous because they beat us to the presence of the Lord. And so in a sense, it becomes more of a worship service than it does a time of grief. It becomes a celebration of their earthly life leading to their heavenly life. That's the experience that Naomi was having on top of two weddings, three funerals, and now a big move back to her home country. Think about how stressful moves are. Those are sometimes more stressful than the funerals and the weddings. In that moment of crisis, she says, I hope Yahweh is as kind and faithful to you as you've been to me. Now, for our AP Bible scholars, I usually have a kind of an AP Bible scholar moment. 
I've been wrestling with this question all week long, and I can't determine what the answer is, so I want you to read through chapter one, and if you can nail it down, I want you to nail it down for me. Is Ruth saved in verse eight, or is she saved in verse 16 through 18, which we're about to look at? Does Ruth come to faith in Yahweh by grace, through faith? Does she do that in verse eight, or verses 16 through 18? So some of you Bible scholars, you need to study that, and then I don't have to stare at the ceiling fan awake at night going, I'm not sure which one this is, so you can... You can do that for me. Now let's look at verses 16 through 18. Verses 16 through 18. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, more also of anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth allowed the faithfulness and kindness of God to flow through her everyday life, not only preparing her for the day when tragedy would strike, but giving her the right to make big promises to God and big promises to people. Ruth just made a big promise to God and a big promise to people. When she says, your God is going to be my God and your people are going to be my people, here's what she's saying. I think about Old Testament gods, and this is just kind of my way of thinking about it. There's much, much more complex arguments to this. But the way that I think about it is Old Testament gods of Old Testament people were kind of like the mascots of your favorite sports team. So everybody has their mascot, right? So now you're a Richland Royal, you're a Halton Buffalo, you're a Birdville Hawk. And so everybody's got their mascot. Everyone's got their team that they root for. That's kind of how it was in the Old Testament. Different groups of people had different gods that they rooted for. And sometimes those countries would go to battle. And so think about it like two teams playing a football game. You're going to see which mascot wins, which team is better. And whatever God won that battle, whatever God won that battle, that is the God that is more alive. That's the God that's more real. That's the God that's stronger, more powerful. And so you say, my God is more powerful and stronger than your God. Essentially, this is how some of you guys fill out a March Madness bracket. You look at the mascots and you say, which mascot would win over this mascot, right? I know how some of you guys work. You probably won your office pool just based on picking mascots for the March Madness. But when they would battle, these two mascots of these two people were going at it. And when one would win, that would be the more powerful God. So think about God playing into this scenario. Think about the exodus in Egypt. When God brings those plagues in Egypt, he's saying, I'm more powerful than the Nile. I'm more powerful than frogs. I'm more powerful than the lineage of your firstborn child. Because when he takes all those things away, he's saying, don't worship those. I'm the one true living God that made all those things. When you see Old Testament people go to battle and God's people just stand there and God wins the battle for them, that's God saying, I'm more powerful than the God you're facing. You didn't have to pick up a sword. You didn't have to do anything. You could smash a pot on the ground and light a fire, and I will win the battle, right? And all he's saying is, I'm more powerful than their mascot. The God you serve is the one true living God. I'm more powerful than them. And so when you say, my God is going to be your God, and my people are going to be your people, these gods were also geographic. Ruth is making the choice to move from Moab back to Israel with Naomi, Not only is she saying the gods of Moab are not real, Yahweh is the one true living God. She's saying, I'm willing to even move from Moab to go to Israel with you to be a part of worshiping your one true living God. She's making a big promise to God. She's saying, I'm leaving the gods of Moab and I'm coming to go worship the one true living God. 
She had a front row seat for 10 years to the faithfulness and kindness of God. She said, now it's time to make my choice. I'm leaving the gods of Moab and I'm following the one true living God. Some of you are in that exact moment this morning. You're in the exact place in your life. Some of you have been going to this church for 10 years. You've had a front row seat to the faithfulness and kindness of God every single Sunday. Every text message that you've received, every funeral meal that's been brought to your house, every fellowship that you've gone to with your Bible fellowship group, every game you've watched with the guys in your Bible fellowship group, the relationships that you've built here, you've had a front row seat to the faithfulness and kindness of God. You've seen it over and over and over again. And yet you've never left to go worship the one true living God. You keep one foot in Moab and one foot in Israel. You keep one foot with your old gods and one, one foot with your new gods. You love to have that front row seat, but you've never made the choice that Ruth has made to say, I'm leaving my old gods and the things I used to worship, and I'm worshiping the one true living God. You're keeping a foot in both worlds because maybe your wife makes you come to your Bible fellowship group, or your husband makes you come, or it's good for the kids, or I like to volunteer. It's just another community organization that you support, and yet you've never made the choice to leave your old life behind and to follow God. You've never made that choice. That's what we call repenting of saying, I've sinned and I've fallen short. I'm going to repent of my old life and follow the one true living God. Does it ever mean you're going to be perfect this side of heaven? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But does it mean you're willing to go all in, to make a big promise to God, say, I'm going to worship you the rest of my life? That the old gods that I used to serve in Moab are not really real, and they're not giving me the hope and the joy and the peace that I've had a front row seat for for 10 years. Don't think because you serve here, because you help us out, because you volunteer any of those things that that gets you into heaven, or that means that you've made the choice that Ruth has made. God is not basing this on time or volunteer hours or the sincerity of your heart. He's simply saying this, you need to repent of your sin and follow me. And so when Ruth declares out loud, I'm going to leave these gods in Moab and follow your gods, that's a big, big statement. That's a big promise to God. She also made a big promise to people. She made a big promise to people in that Ruth says, Naomi, I'm going with you. You are literally my ride or die. Is only, if you look in those verses, only death is going to separate me from the pledge that I'm about to make to you. Ruth, I am so, Ruth says to Naomi, I am uh, so loyal to you, so faithful to you, that I want the faithfulness and kindness of God to flow through me to you for the rest of our lives that I'm literally your ride or die, that until we die, I will be faithful to you and I will be kind to you. I will take care of you in these crisis moments. But you know what makes that pledge so important, so powerful? It's built on a 10-year track record. A 10-year track record that she had built up in that family. And so big promises are oftentimes built on big experiences and long track records and character. They're built on saying, hey, I have a track record here that when I plant this flag and say, I'm going to be faithful and kind to you, I really mean it. You can trust it in my character. You can see it in my life. So how can we live like Ruth? How can we live a life like Ruth? Well, for one, we can let the faithfulness and kindness of God flow through our families. When we're making lunches and we're running carpool and we're doing these things, would the faithfulness and kindness of God flow through your home? Because I can tell you this, in my limited experience in ministry, the day of crisis will come 
Whatever a crisis looks like for your family, whatever the tragedy looks like for your family, it will come. There will be that day. Nobody's immune. We got people that done every Bible study known to man, and those people still have tragedies. They still have crises. It does not insulate them from suffering. And so one way that you can live like Ruth tomorrow morning is to wake up and say, I'm going to let the faithfulness and kindness of God flow through our family so that when the day of crisis comes, we're going to be ready. We'll have that quiet resolve, that faithfulness, that strength that comes in being faithful to God. The other way is this. I would challenge you if you're uh, dating someone. If you're dating someone, man, woman, if you're divorced, if you're redating, you're getting back on the apps, you're going with it, you're dyeing your hair, you're doing the cool stuff. <laughs> Here's what I would caution you in this. If someone's getting ready to make a big promise to you, I don't care if you just graduated from high school or you're jumping back in the pool or wherever you're at in your life, if you're going out there and you're dating and you're meeting people and you've now gotten close to this person, if they're getting ready to make a big promise to you, I want you to ask this question, have they, do they have the right to make a big promise to you? Do they have a 10-year track record like Ruth did to say, you're going to be my ride or die. I'm making a promise to you that's going to last for the rest of our lives. And I would challenge you with this. If you don't see anything in their character and anything in their track record that would make you think that that big promise is meaningful and that big promise is going to last for a lifetime, I'd really begin to pray about that decision. I'd really begin to pray about a decision going, nothing in your track record, nothing in your life tells me that you're going to live up to this promise that you're making to me. We make big promises to each other, but we don't always live up to them. Now, I will say this. God never expects perfection. He never expects us to be perfect. And so I'm not asking for that person that you're dating to be perfect, but is there anything in their life that when they plant that flag, when they make that big promise, you would believe them? That you would say, yeah, I think they're going to be my ride or die. I think they're really going to see it in, see it all the way to the end of my life. For some of you, you're already married. You've already made the big promise. That promise could have been made 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And so you've made this big promise to each other. You planted that flag on that altar to say, I'm going to let the faithfulness and kindness of God flow through my life to you for the rest of our lives. And yet you haven't been living up to that promise. It's been 10 years, it's been 20 years, it's been 30 years, and you're failing to live up to the promise you made. Am I saying you have to be a perfect spouse? No. Am I saying that you won't fold the towels right, you won't dust right, you won't vacuum right, you won't do any of those things right? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. That's okay. You will not put things in the dishwasher the correct way ever in your life. So don't even worry about it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about will the faithfulness and kindness of God flow through your life to your spouse until you die? Not perfection, but are you willing to plant a flag and make a big promise to your spouse? To say, I know I made a big promise to you 20 years ago, but I'm going to start acting like it today. Because I'll tell you this, we have husbands and wives in our congregation who are not living up to the promises they made. They're just simply not. Whether it be selfishness or sin, temptation, evil, whatever it is, simply not living up to the promises they made to each other. It breaks God's heart. And so take this challenge from Ruth chapter 1. Would you ever be able to say what Ruth says 
in verses 16 through 18. Let me read those verses again for us. Ruth chapter one, verses 16 through 18. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.